Welcome to the show. Yeah. Hey. Hey, we're hey. back. Hey. We're back. I'm, Look at I'm us. Scott. And I'm Ollie. This is uh, hey. Science In Between. In Between. In Between. And Yeah. And this week, uh, we have decided, because we are both uh, stressed out about the beginning of the new academic year and what that means for us, that That's we're going to talk a little bit about the processes and principles and practices that we use or, or deploy when we're thinking about what technologies we're going to use when we do our teaching. Yeah, and that, and that sort of spans this whole idea of the, that's in between, between what we're doing in our face-to-face classrooms when, when and if we get the chance to do that again, and uh, what we do in our online or remote or hybrid classrooms. And, you know, I think with our last episode, we, t- we went really, de- we dug deep into science education. And so this will kind of be more of a, you know, a general, you know, topic about uh, teaching and technology and the intersection between the twos. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um. So I, I think that for me, when I start to think about technology, I mean, it's that whole, I, I guess it comes back to affordances, right? The, mm. the concept of like what, what makes the thing the thing or what the, what the thing can do. And right. so, so affordances that's- and constraints. Affordances, affordances and constraints. And that gets really techy, right? That's the, yeah. that's the place we go as tech people is we try to think about, okay, what, what's it good for? What does it sort of afford? And, and then what are the constraints for that too? Um, some of that might be like student voice, might be um, student ability to author things, um, might be like where it lives and where we can share it and things like that. So those are some of the uh, constraints, but the affordances is that, you know, maybe it's a place for students to unpack their thinking, or it might be a place for them. I mean, I'm trying to not get like in the technology mm-hmm. weeds, right. And talk about yeah. like, you know, things like CSV files. We don't want to bring that back. No, you know? we don't. No, let's not bring that back. No, please. we're not bringing that back. Although it is, it is something I'm sure listeners have learned uh, from listening to you, your wisdom, yeah. Scott. That com- comma separated files are, are yes. that they can, yeah, that they can learn about. I think it's the V for values. Values, comma, comma separ- separated values. There you yeah, go. There you go. So coming back to you. So we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the uh the, the the p's you said three p's right that's the three p's right three Pro- p's. processes principles and practices yeah. that relate to uh the technology selection so yeah. well and and one of the things i guess you know the reason i talked or the we're talking about those three p's is and and you were making this point which i think is really important is um, this happens on lots of different levels, right? So you look at individual technologies and look at the affordances and constraints of that technology. Like, what is it designed to do? What can it help me do better? But what is it not very good at and is going to be a limitation? Um, but also, there are bigger picture things that have to do the, with, you know, you were saying like student voice or right. larger things that were, were um, we consider. And, and like one of the ones I'm always... Um, trying to focus on when I'm doing this decision making is um, is sort of lowering acts, uh, barriers to entry and um, with in terms of the technologies themselves and trying to reduce um, platform complexity right so one of the things I think I I, um, I think can be a problem is and I'm especially aware of this as, as we go into a semester where lots of different faculty are going to be teaching remotely because they're all going to, one of the problems we're seeing, right. And we've talked about this already is that 
students are, are getting very different, potentially very different experiences with different faculty because faculty are choosing different tools. And so universities try to fix that by saying, well, everybody's going to use this platform. But then within that platform, there's always like, well, I want you to use like um, Jam Jamboard from Google. And, and but these people want to use, you know, uh, Oh my gosh, I just blanked on the name of the other tool that we were using. But, you know, that you know, I've got some other cool new tool. I want to use VoiceThread yeah. and, and and but we're going to use Twitter and and I want to use Reddit and we're going to, you know, and so even though the platforms the same fundamentally like well, okay, at Penn State we're all using Canvas, then all these little tools get plugged in and all the tools require some other piece. And so this complexity builds on itself and makes it really hard for students, I think. Yeah. I think one of the, the takeaways for me is more tools does not equal better learning. Mm. Um, and I think for me, it's, it, you know, I, I, I was working with a school district recently and I was uh, really debriefing with them some of the things that happened with them in the spring. And they said that their elementary uh, uh, schools were just going kind of bananas with all the technologies they added, right? And they said that some of the students were using like 20 or 30 different technologies, you know, to support their reading and support their math. And, and they just sort of collected all of these. And then sometimes too much is too much, right? I mean, there's, and, and I think that's uh, one of the, there's, as I talk to these, these teachers, I was saying there's like a cognitive load that happens that, you know, that just having sort of that extraneous cognitive load of just jumping from system to system and trying to figure out, okay, that this software does this and this application does this and this does this and what's my login again and what's my password and all of the energy, the cognitive energy you have to, a student has to dedicate to doing all of that, right? That is, is time and energy that could also be spent to learning and, mm -hmm. And, and it's, so some of that is really good stuff and some of it's not. And, and I, I said the other thing that I'm, I'm thinking a little bit as, as you talked about complexity, um, I did a, I was sort of uh, moderating a panel discussion at a conference recently. And it was a, one of the Penn State World Campus people were there um, and, and she was one of the instructional designers. And she talked about sort of this continuum of complexity and cost. And so we wanna think about things that are like kind of low, low cost and low complexity for students, especially in online environments. And then if, it, it, depending on their utility for us as teachers, mix in some of the high cost, high complexity things if they really prove to be things that are valuable for our students. So I could think of like maybe uh, a simulation or a, a lab environment type of thing that might be something that like, you know, a virtual reality thing would be something that would be completely out there, but that'd be high cost and high, high complexity. Um, but that would be something that would be really hard to replace, especially if we're working remotely or especially work, working online. So, so, so yeah. you want to you unpack this processes, principles and practices a little bit? Sure. Yeah, putting you on the spot yeah. right there. Unpack, I'm gonna unpack it. Yeah, yeah. Um, unpack the peas. That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, um, so, so fundamentally, I think, principles are things that don't change across environments. So you and I worked on this project together for a while to yes. talk about learning spaces. We're, we're, that's all we're going to say about it. We're not going to, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to open that wound again, but, um, but the, the idea was, are there principles, are there ways 
are there things that we think about that cut across learning environments, regardless of mode, regardless of, of pedagogical approach, right? So if you're teaching asynchronous on, online versus face-to-face -face versus everything in between and whatever that even means, like are there principles that we cleave to, that we say these are things we try to accomplish in every learning environment? And um, for us, that also is grounding those those principles in learning theory, right? Not just saying, well, I've got this good idea about how kids learn, so I've, I've cooked up this thing that I think is really important. It's like, well, for us, it's actually grounded in learning theory when we make those decisions about principles. Yeah, so that not to give too much away for this this project that, that this failed project we had. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I, okay, it wasn't let's failed. Not, let's yeah, not use the F word, please. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so we can uh, we can definitely talk about some of the practices. I mean, some of the principles that we had embedded in this this project. So we're we're kind of like, and it actually resembles pretty nicely this whole podcast idea is that we had this idea of design principles that span different learning environments. So whether it's a face to face environment or an online environment, and so what we were thinking about were the things that apply to all learning environments, whether it's online or whether it's face to face, and so one of the things that we thought about was that if we're using any technology and technology we're using broadly right any sort of thing not just things that plug into a wall and not just applications that are web-based or whatever we were thinking about just like any technology whether it's a piece of paper or scissors or or anything yeah and so so one of the things we had in that sort of like principles, design principles, was that it should uh, scaffold authentic practice, that it should be mm -hmm. something that helps to build learners. So as they are working at a certain level, that the technology can help them get to the next level. So very, you know, not to get esoteric again, but very yeah, Vygotsky, yeah. right? Like yeah. that, that, that zone of proximal development, that what it's, the technology should be helping with that, should be helping to move a, a learner from stage A to stage B. And then, you know, and as it does that, maybe increases in complexity or maybe increases in features or maybe increases in some way so that, that the technology helps them as a learner be where they are, right? That's one of the principles that we thought. So that's, I think that's a, a good one, even even now, as we are a couple years removed from this conversation, I think mm -hmm. as I look back at that, it's it still it still holds up. So it was a fun idea, Scott. Yeah, well, you know, principles are supposed to hold up over at least a couple of years. So hopefully, hopefully they all hold up reasonably well, but we'll see. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that is, you know, we, we have talked in, in a previous episode or previous episodes about this idea of what is an authentic practice, especially sure. in the context of science. So um, this idea that, uh, and this is, you know, like you said, grounded in in Vygotsky and in Levin Wenger's notions of of communities of practice, right? This idea that learning isn't just the facts, dude. It's sure. it's it's the the processes, and here's the second P. It's the processes that you go through and the practices that you're engaged in while you're doing that learning. So it's not just like, hey, um, F equals M A. Great, I'm going to write that down. Now I'm a scientist. Um, it's understanding that F equals MA only makes sense if you're trying to make sense of something in the world with other people. And that thing, that little, little scientific law is useful to help you understand that process, that, 
that problem that you're trying to investigate. So, so creating learning environments where that's what students are doing is that they're, they're engaged in problem, problem solving and sometimes problem finding uh, through authentic ways. That is the ways that scientists would do it as much as we can. Now we, we recognize like they're not really going to be scientists, right? They're not really going to sure. discover new ideas in science, but they can be scaffolded and supported into supporting, uh, into developing their own explanations of the world that are very powerful and can help them understand how the way the world works. And I think what's, what's, what I, I still like about that principle, that design principle is that it is, uh, it reflects whatever can the continuum of which, a learner is. So if we're working with students who are at the younger grades, uh, what that authentic practice would look like would be different than somebody who's looking at working at maybe a high school or a collegiate environment. So mm -hmm. that scaffolding, I think, is built into the uh, age appropriateness, right, to use that term, mm -hmm. of the technology selection, because I think that's critical for a lot of, of teachers is they want to select a technology or select a, a tool that is appropriate for their, their learner. And I think if you're thinking about it from what kids can do and what we want them to do from a practice standpoint, that's sort of, you know, sort of built into that. And I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think like what that made me think about was um, another piece of of this is that communities, when they're working on problems, they materialize their thinking, right? They create external representations of their thinking. So they yeah, that's a, down. They that was another one. That's another yeah. design principle right there. Well, I, I didn't say reify. I could have said reify. You could have dropped the reify. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an inside joke right there. Dropping yeah. the reify. Dropping the reify. <laughs> Yeah. So, do we define that for people? Because they're like maybe going to Google and saying, "No, all uh, right." They could, just, if they if they want to know what reify is, they can show do. notes. Show notes. That's right. So that so this idea of like when people are working together, we want them to externalize their ideas so they can be examined, so they can talk about them, so that they can um, have a record of them too, right? And and also the externalizing ideas is a, a, a critical part of the thinking process. And it's so a critical of part things, of the teaching process too. I would say it's critical for us as right. teachers. I mean, it's the, the only way that we can really, I mean, we can't like cut open their heads and take a look in and say, hey, what's going on in there? And how, how are they making, you know, we're not going to see synapses. We're not going to see it like things connected. We're just not going to do that. We're not going to make, the way we have to do that is through some sort of representation of their learning, whether it's, you know, some sort of like mapping, mind mapping, or whether it's a, a drawing or a model or some sort of representation of how they understand things. So I, I, I cut you off there, but I just felt That's the need right. to jump in and jump. Yes, you did. I you did. did feel the need to jump in. It's um, all right. That's right. So, so you do, you, you have to have these representations. You need them. It's part of the learning process, part of the teaching process. Um, but how that happens in, across these different environments changes tremendously. So the idea, you know, again, it's sort of like a principle or a practice. I don't know which one that one is. I guess that, that one's really more of a practice, which is we want our students producing ideally shared artifacts, right? So yeah. not just I'm going to take a test or I'm going to do a quiz or I'm going to, you know, fill out this form or whatever it is so that you can evaluate my learning. Um, but part, but because that's summative, we want things where, you know, we're not just evaluating kids' ideas and saying, yes, it's right or yes, it's wrong, or no, it's wrong. We want, we want to design environments where they're building artifacts together 
that represent their understanding and that we want those things to evolve over time. So those attributes are things that we're going to look for in the technologies, right? That they allow the technologies that we want as the teaching technologies. We want them to provide opportunities for kids to represent their thinking in some externalized way. And we want to have a way that they can track that over time so they can see those things evolve. And that can happen in lots of ways, you know, like you were saying, in, in my classes and with my professional development when I work with teachers, traditionally, if we're in face-to-face -face environments, a lot of that stuff gets done on whiteboards, right? So shared whiteboards, yep. you're drawing it, and then you stand up and say, here's what our model is, here's what our representation of that thing is. But now we've shifted and, and that doesn't work at least in the same way as it used to. So we have to now start thinking about, well, if we're not all sitting in a room together where we can write on a whiteboard, how do we create these externalized representations that are shared that we can all work on together um, and that track over time? Like we talked about residue uh, a while back, you know, this idea of learning residue. Well, we want to be able to see the evolution of our own thinking because that's part of the process of learning too. Yeah, I think, I, I think what, you know, I, I wonder like how a listener is hearing this right now and going, okay, I was, I thought maybe they're just going to give us a list of, of technologies that they, yeah. hey, what are the best websites to use? And, uh. and I think that there's probably a place for that, but that's not this. I think it's what we're trying to really do is to give you some of the ways of thinking when you select, I mean, cause like, here's what, what I, you know, there's, you know, at some conferences, I go to a lot of these technology conferences where they'll just go, hey, here's a ton of tools. And then I, I leave going, okay, what, what the heck am I supposed to do with that? And, and, and this is one of those things like, okay, yeah, I have this hammer. I'm just going to go around and hammer things with this hammer. Mm -hmm. Or I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, yeah, I'm blogging with my students. And I'm like, well, why? What are you doing with that? And it's like, oh, I don't know. I'm just having a blog. And yeah. it's more than just using a technology. It's having, you know, what was the purpose for that? So if you're thinking, okay, I want to be able to capture my students thinking or how they're representing their thoughts or how they're making meaning of something and then capturing that over time to be able to see how they develop. That's a completely different sort of mindset or, you know, starting point for a teacher than it just saying I'm blogging to blog because it's available. Right. right. And that's a, a different thing. I think that, you know, one of the, uh, this is something, uh, an author friend of mine, I, she and I were talking about uh, coaching, actually, instructional coaching. Mm -hmm. And so she was talking about like how people pick technologies for their classrooms. And I, I say I sort of had this Home Depot approach. This is the way, and this is actually in her book, um, mm -hmm. that the Home Depot approach is that, you know, when you walk into Home Depot, they never ask, what are you looking for? They ask, what are you working on? And so, cause you could come in and say, I'm looking for a hammer and well, what are you doing with a hammer? Well, I'm fixing my toilet. Well, you're probably got not a, needing a hammer to fix a toilet. Mm -hmm. You're probably need something else. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the tool you, you might want might not be the tool you need. And so mm -hmm. thinking about, cause it's embedded in practice. It's coming back to that sort of that first principle we talked about, you know, the, the tool use and the technologies that we choose are embedded in the practice that we want students to do. And so if that's something, and if that's something where we want them to author content or share their voice or share their face or be social, right? Uh, mm -hmm. To socially engage and build understanding with one another, which I know is critical to you and to me with how, not only how we teach, but also how we teach teachers to teach. Um, mm -hmm. Those are things that we have to think about technologies that support that. Mm -hmm. and, Right. And we, and we can talk through specific examples. I mean, I, I think 
those tools, like those lists of tools and websites and whatever, I yeah. agree with you, like not, not helpful. And they're not helpful in all sorts of ways. One is your, it can be overwhelming. Um, and, and you know, the other reason they're not helpful is they're constantly changing. Right. So the question is like, what, what do you, what are these ideas? Like, how do you go in? What are the criteria you're going to use to make a decision about whether this technology works for you or not? So like when we were doing the professional development this summer, um, you know, originally we, we had big plans for using Nearpod um, and we, we played with it and we used it in some of the early lessons. And then we realized actually the overhead, you know, back to these affordances and constraints, the overhead is another component, which is the complexity of the tool in terms of its use, right? So some tools are easy to use, um, but they may not be very powerful. And you mentioned this before. And then some tools are very powerful, but they're not very easy to use. And so you 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 have to kind of figure out like which where you are in that continuum. And remember that your students or your teachers, if you're teaching teachers, have to you have to spend time supporting their understanding of a tool the further along that spectrum it is. So the more complex it is, the more time you have to spend teaching them how to use the tool before they can use the tool productively because that complexity is built in. So we and and there were other affordances and constraints, mostly constraints to Nearpod that made us drop it and just say, look, we're going to just use Google Slides. It it serves our purposes. It affords what we want, which is the externalizing of representation of ideas, which is what we were talking about before. It allows them to be shared. It allows us to present easily across different groups um, and uh, groups all have access to it. So that was the tool that we chose. Now, is Google Slides the solution to everything? No. It was oh, I thought it was. I was, I was prepared to write that down. You should, well, I mean, you should write it down. Google it is. Slides is Google not. Slides, not right. no. I've never heard of it. So, never heard of it. <laughs> So um, as, as you say that, you don't make principal decisions, right? Sure. That's a good way so, to make this. As, as I say it, as I say it, what you, you're profoundly, you were, you were, you're, this was your epiphany for the, for this episode was Google slides is not for everything. No, actually not. That was not the epiphany here. Okay, uh, it's good. actually this, uh, the, you know, so one of the tools I, I was, I was reminiscing about a tool that I miss, you know, that like, the, the wiki, right? There was like the wikis are one of these things that sort of lost favor because other things came out and replaced it, right? There was, so we have this sort of like technology creep where, you know, things, it, there's always new technologies and this is an industry, right? There, there's an right. industry behind this and it, you know, while, you know, people think, oh, we're getting this app for free or we're getting this, you know, add on or whatever for free, there's a cost that happens. And, and all you have to do is go to ISTE and you can see these big, huge companies. And I feel like Wikispaces was one of those ones. And, and you know, certainly I'm dating myself because this is, mm-hmm. goes back like maybe 10, 15 years ago. But it's one of those technologies that had so much utility and had, a, there's all, all that his, history that comes with it so that you can chart things and its development. And it's a collaborative tool that people can use together. And I just found it to be so, it had so much use for so many different purposes. And so, and it was not something that was particularly complex, but it's sort of 
lot. I mean, it's gone. It's just Wikispaces. Right, but it, but it's an interesting case study in sure. affordances and constraints, right? In the sense that I remember wikis too, and I used them in my classes, and they were powerful tools. And I remember, at least for me, what killed wikis, which was rightly, which was the thing that eventually became Google Docs, right? Right. And the profound thing that rightly did that wikis never did, and were were a constraint is they didn't let multiple authors edit at the same time. Right. So that that constraint in the tool, at least for me, is what killed that tool in my use, right? So, but that, but Wikipedia is still around. And, and so, so wikis as a thing have found their niche, yeah. but you know, this idea that initially often we, we take this some new tool and we try to use it everywhere. And then slowly over time, we realize it drifts into the sort of niche that it has. And you can see this in all, like the other one that comes to mind immediately is MOOCs, right? So when MOOCs oh, yeah. first came out, MOOCs were going to replace all universities. They were going to be the ideal learning environment. Nobody ever was going to have to do any other kind of learning. This was going to transform everything. And then pretty soon, you know, MOOCs drifted into their little niche and they're still around and people sure. still build them and use them, but they do what they do. And so... I think the danger is thinking that technologies don't have constraints, that they are good at everything and they should, we should just use them for everything. And, and, um, and, you know, obviously, like you say, businesses have a vested interest in people thinking their tools are good for everything, but. Well, I, I would, I would argue this, that, that sometimes the constraint might be considered a feature. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, and so I think about, uh, sites that I use, tools that I use with my students. So for instance, I, uh, I use Screencast-O-Matic and Flipgrid with my students. And some of the constraints with that is that they don't allow you to record for long periods of time, right? You, right. you, you can't record for hours. You can record for you know, minutes. And that's a constraint, but it's also a feature, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it allows, because what we don't want is students to just wax poetic or just you know just talk and talk and talk without really thinking about what they're talking about i mean i think that's the same thing with you know with with teachers right if this is a feature for teachers too mm -hmm. it's um and so while you're talking about wiki spaces that single authoring thing what proved to be somewhat cumbersome at times it was an interesting feature uh, mm -hmm. it was definitely a constraint that you could only have one person authoring a page at one time but I, I would argue there, there are times when I'm looking at a Google Doc and you have multiple editors that they're not necessarily working collaboratively, that what they're doing is they're working side by side, right? Sure. But that was happening. I mean, the wikis weren't better at that. No, no, no. You're right. So, so, so that's a, yeah, I mean, I agree. On some level, every feature is a constraint or, or an affordance. Yeah. or both at the same time maybe um because it's designed to do something right it, it's designed now the thing we know about technology is people don't always use it the way that it was designed so um so that is another piece of this sort of user innovation right like we get a hold of this tool and we start using it for this other thing and then suddenly people develop it for that thing because they say oh I, we didn't even think it was going to get used for that um and you know, that, but I think what you were saying there is really interesting in the sense that you were talking about matching affordances and constraints, and this is what we are talking about, matching affordances and constraints with pedagogical choices that you want to make. So yes. if you want your kids to build artifacts together, then wikis don't do that. No. Um, now, Google 
docs have the potential to do it, does that mean they magically do it? No, it means that there's pedagogical support that you have to put in place to, so that Google Docs are more like that or Google Slides are more like that, right? So, so the technologies don't operate in a vacuum. They operate in a pedagogical context where you're making choices about teaching. And you know, you're always making this decision about, okay, does this tool do what I want it to do in the way that I want it to do, to do it? And if not, am I gonna change my pedagogy to fit the tool or am I gonna change my tool out and, and leave my pedagogy in place? So, that, so you're always building out this system, right? Where you're having to make choices about the affordances and constraints of the technology and the choices that you have pedagogically and how those puzzle pieces fit together to give you a decision you can live with. And the potential mismatch between the sort of pedagogy that the tool represents and the pedagogy that you represent. Oh, you're trying to get in a class dojo. I hear you doing it. I hear you doing it, but you're not going to bait me. I'm trying so hard. I, 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 I have this big grin on my face. Try, I, I, I heard where you were going and I was yeah. seeing if I could not touch bait that you a little yet. bit. Yeah. Nope. That's a, that's we're, we're going to have, we'll, we'll have that for the, for the week we do the fundraiser, yes. we'll say we're going to set aside Class Dojo for the fundraiser. You have to be, you have to have, uh, you have to be in the Patreon to get access to the Class Dojo. Right, or sign up for the newsletter or whatever That's else right. come, whatever. comes along with this. Send it, us a fifty dollar bill in the mail, whatever it is. Right, whatever, whatever, whatever system we set up to to fund this boondoggle. But I think that is one of the things that um, that we need to consider as teachers is what I don't think we. So technology is designed like the like the, we don't find Class Dojo or Flipgrid out there in the nature, right? People are designing this stuff, and so they're des always designed with some sort of frame of mind, some sort of like intention, um, and it represents some way of 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 learning, some sort of idea of how people learn. And this, I think, goes back a few episodes when we talked about this before. Um, but I think that as we're selecting the things we're doing, we have to be really mindful of the fact that we have to, I mean, maybe do some investigative work. It's like, okay, well, what does this, what does this do? Not necessarily for us, but what does it do? Um, or how does it reflect learning? I, mean, I think maybe that's the best way to frame that question. Or, or what type of learning does this reflect or embody or afford? And right. then from there, um, how does that match with what we want to do? Because they're not, they're not neutral. They're not, technology's not neutral. Right. There's, it, it has a way that's built into it, that's designed into it, whether it's how people share. And I think that's also, um, it's not neutral from a control standpoint from a teacher or from a student. So that, that's another aspect there that we have to consider is like how, I mean, the issues of control and, and sharing and, and power is another aspect that I think, um, I mean, there's sometimes we want to be able to, especially when we're talking about like, I don't know, maybe really controversial topics or things that we want to not necessarily control, but maybe moderate a little bit more. Those are things that we want to be able to make sure that we have some degree of moderation um, as teachers. But then there's other times where we want to make sure that the students feel empowered in the learning process. I don't know. I just went down like a you know, rabbit hole right there. Yeah. Where, where, where are you now? You're nah. in a rabbit hole. I can't find you, Alex. I know, I know. No, it's <laughs> you're just... having this conversation and now you're in a weird little rabbit hole. Well, so it's, it's come it's out just... and tell me what you're talking about. Well, it's just some of the things I'm thinking about in terms of, you know, uh, so I'm reading a lot of things in preparation for uh, this class I'm teaching for the fall. 
Um, and it really talks about like, you know, how students, how students grapple with concepts and, and giving them the, the wiggle room um, to, to learn and to, to, to think. And, and, and as teachers, we have to give them that, that wiggle room to do that. And then I, then I think about, you know, some of the podcasts I've been listening to. So I've been like listening to, you know, uh, nice white parents. So we talked about that in a previous episode, but then there's, you know, there's, that's sort of in there too, in terms of, you know, the, the, how there was an episode, I don't know if it was episode four or, or, or something where there was uh, one of the school environments that they feature had a lot to do with, you know, they were trying to control the students in all aspects, right. In all aspects mm-hmm. of learning. And so they viewed uh, control as being the thing that provides equality for, and this almost comes through. It's like, like there's this charter school that they featured that was talking about, okay, we breed, afford quality, equality through control by everybody doing the same thing in the same way all the time. And I think about how technology, now in that episode, it was really coming at it from the standpoint of, you know, the, the rules in place and how students moved and interacted. But, I, but that's also present in the technologies we choose, um, how much control and how much voice and, you know, freedom we give students. And yeah, well, and there, and there are classes of technology too. Like some of the ones you mentioned, um, you know, like Flipgrid is designed for an educational context. Like it has an educational mission right. and, and their model for education is implicit. Like, like you're saying, like we, they didn't say like, we believe this is the way learning happens. They just built Flipgrid and said, uh, we're putting it out in the world and people are going to use it. Um, and then there's other lots of technologies that we use. I mean, we're using one now, Zoom and Google right. Slides and Google everything, like <laughs> that are not designed to be learning environments. They're just things, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're tools that have a more generic use. They get used in education. Um, and then they may have an implicit model of learning, but not as much. Um, and usually the implicit model of learning comes from the way the teacher uses it, right? So, so there, are some, there are some tools that are a little more agnostic than others, right? So Flipgrid has a POV on what learning looks like. So it, it, it has a sense of like, here's our model. We think the way that teachers and students interact is in this way, and we're gonna build a tool to facilitate that. So it's got affordances and constraints that are designed for that implicit sort of learning model. So I'm agreeing with you. I mean, I think, I think the thing that you, you have to always be aware of as a teacher is, um, is if this tool has an implicit learning model, what is it? And does it comport with mine? Because if not, then you're doing the hard work of trying to bend a tool to a different purpose than it was designed right. for. And it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that it requires more than finding a tool that actually is better aligned with the way that you think about teaching and learning. So let's, let's like wrap up some of this stuff or at least like kind of yes. can kind of put it into some, some nice box here. Cause I, we're, we're, we're kind of navigating a lot of uh, territory. So yes. one is as around per usual. as per usual, um, which is not a, not a bad thing. It's, oh. it's the conversation of, Scott and Ollie. It's science um, in between. It is science in between. So yeah. one is that, you know, technology should be doing this, the scaffolding of authentic practices. It should also be reflecting um, multiple representations. So supporting multiple representations. It should match 
you know, how you view learning um, as a teacher um, so that pedagogically the types of things that it's affording are things that you value and the ways that you see learning and the ways that you see students building understanding. Um, yeah. And it should be mindful of the constraints and the affordances that are built in or, uh, and, and maybe the features, if we want to throw yeah. that in there too. Sure. Um, yeah. And so that sort of like wraps up in terms of the, the, the things we've talked about so far um, with the technologies. We won't get into that, that, that the, the power thing, but I think that, no. you know. Well, we I have think, to at some point, but yeah. We do. I, I think we do. I think that's something that, um, you know, but I think that's probably that we have in our, our you know, planning notes, something about uh, culturally responsive teaching. And I think that might be yeah. a, a place for us to, you know, that'd be a, a, a great phrase, uh, place for us to talk about that in more depth. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'll add one more thing to the summary, which is um, just thinking about the, the whole ecosystem, right? So the idea that um, if you're going to use multiple tools, be conscious of that and be aware that your, your students, whether they're teachers or whether they're kids, K-12 kids, or whether they're higher ed or whatever, like they live in an environment too, and you're not the only contributor to that environment. So understanding um, how your choices have an effect on the whole system is important. Um, so just because you found a cool new tool, uh, if you start using it, there are consequences not just for your students, but for all of the people who teach those students too. And um, and so that's that's an important thing to remember is is to keep your you know, when, when you're making a choice about, do I really need this thing? You, you want to build it on your principles. Like, yeah, I really need it because it does this piece that I can't do otherwise, but then think about the fact that that fits into a larger system and you, and you got to be careful about that. And, and one, and one of the, I can't remember where I read this, but I think it's, it's valuable in this. Cause we, we, you know, a few minutes ago, I talked about the fact that more is not better. More is more. Um, right. And one of the, I don't know which I can't, I can't think of who the author who actually said this, but what they said was you can either teach a new technology or a new concept choose mm. because you can't, you can't do both mm. at, the, at the same time, or if you're right. going to, one's going to suffer. So you either teach a concept and use the tool that you've used before or teach a technology and have that be on a concept that you've already learned. And so being mm. intentional in terms of, because the students are, are learning if you're introducing both of them at the same time, it, it comes back to, I mean, maybe to some degree that a cognitive load concept a little bit. I know that gets probably outside of our little sociocultural, you know, mm -hmm. views of learning a little bit, but I think it applies. It is that, you know, students can only dedicate so much time and energy to a task. And if you're asking them to learn some new tool while also trying to understand or make meaning of some concept that you're introducing, that that's going to be a real struggle, regardless of what's, what, what age group it is for the students. And that, yeah. that scaffolding I mean, it, is going to have to happen. Right. And it, it may not be so much cognitive load as it is um, like teaching is a zero sum situation, right? Like you only have a certain amount of hours with your right. students and, and every hour you do X, you can't do Y. And that's just the way it works. And, and depending on the technology tool, tools you choose, you have to spend time helping kids understand how to use those tools. And that is time that goes away. It, you don't yeah. get to just expand how, how much time you have. And it's, you can't ask them to do it on their own time because that's still your time. Like, you know, like they say, every, every course you have X number of contact hours and Y number of hours are supposed to be working outside the classroom. Well, that's your total time. You don't get to say, well, that other class isn't important. They can learn Flipgrid, you know, and not worry about their math or whatever. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, so we're at our at our summary for today, which is consider your principles, practices, and processes when doing these technology decisions. And remember that there's there's complicated things to think about, but that but that you ultimately have to make choices that are based on on the learning environment you're trying to build, right? And you you want to select tools and affordances, uh, tools that have affordances and constraints that match that. Nice. So that's a, that's a good that. concise summary, Scott. Bravo. Thank you. Three claps for Scott. Nice work, yeah. There it is. There's my three claps. So Scott, right. yeah, do you have a thing that's bringing you joy as we're uh, nearing the end of our time together? What uh, what's brought you joy this week? Uh, what has brought me joy this week? Um, I'm tr- well, okay. So this is this is a bit of a throwback, but I rewatched a film that I I love, which is called Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Oh, it's awesome. I, I think we could probably do a, uh, a comic book podcast here. That Yes, we probably could. Yeah, we probably that, could. Yeah. The Scott that, Pilgrim so, is a great movie. What a great movie that is. So Edgar Wright, like, yeah, Edgar Wright is a, is a, an amazing filmmaker and the, it's just an all-star cast of, you know, and you sometimes, you don't recognize all the people that were in that and how great it was, but it, yeah. it's, it's just, it's a well-crafted movie. It's super fun. Um, it's, it, there's not a lot of, um, you know, it's not a hard movie to watch. You don't have to, it's not, it's not complicated. It's, it's simple and beautiful and funny. And, uh, so and there's so many big names in there, right? There yeah. are so many big names. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's, I think it's just that it's like 10 year anniversary or something. I had seen it. Yeah, there's an article about, about right. it. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's 10 year anniversary. So I have a throwback too, but a little bit further back from that. Um, okay. I don't know what I was listening to or what I was reading, but someplace it uh, referenced Nina Simone. And oh. I, and you know, so I, I'm kind of rediscovering Nina Simone. And if you're not familiar, uh, you know, she's a, a 1960s black singer who just, I think it's a perfect soundtrack for the world right now. And I've mm. just been listening to it you know, a, a lot in my car, a lot in the house. And it's just, you know, it's just perfect for where we are right now. And the, and the songs hold up and her voice is just amazing. And so it's bringing me joy right now. Yes. And it was, I think where it started sparked for me was I was rewatching Umbrella Academy and the, uh-huh. uh, and the first episode, the first season uses uh, Sinner Man in it for a really climactic part of it. And I'm just like, oh, that's the perfect song. And I, you know, just, and it just sort of reawakened, reawakened for me another comic book, you know. Yeah, another um, comic book reference. Yeah, reference right there. Yeah. But, but the, it sort of like sparked this whole Nina Simone reemergence for me. So that's, that's it. Nice. Um, so Nina that's Simone, Scott Pilgrim, uh, and this is Science in Between. See ya in between, Scott. See ya in between. All right. All right. All right. All right.